Tech Writer Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 740 for the 23rd of April, 2021. This week, cellular providers boast that 75% of the U.S. already has 5G coverage. But there's more than a little hyperbole there. And Russia is doing everything it can to discourage development in the United States. In short circuits, you've probably used Google Translate, but there's a competing service from Germany that might be worth trying. In 1992, Microsoft introduced Windows for work groups. The revolutionary Windows 95 was still a few years in the future, but Windows 3.11 finally offered useful features and better reliability. In spare parts, only on the website, it's possible to marginally improve a Windows 10 computer's speed with changes to some of the system settings. The improvements are usually modest, but perceptible. It's questionable whether offices will ever be fully populated again, but collaboration spaces may be the next step for workers. And 20 years ago, 3Com was in serious trouble and had begun the death spiral that saw it being acquired by HP about eight years later. Approximately three quarters of the U.S. population now has access to some variant of 5G coverage. All services that are billed as 5G aren't the same, though, and Russia continues to spread disinformation about 5G. Most major cellular providers have something they call 5G in at least some areas. LifeWire has a comprehensive report on where 5G is available. There's a link to that article on the TechBiter Worldwide website. And I've been thinking about some of the advantages and disadvantages of the new technology. In most cases, 5G systems operate on frequencies that are higher than those used by 2G, 3G, and 4G systems. Some service providers have pseudo-5G systems that actually operate on 4G frequencies and with slower data rates than true 5G. Because the frequencies are higher, the signals won't travel as far. That means there will be more cell towers, but 5G towers are usually shorter and less obvious. The towers look a lot like light poles, and they are being combined with street lighting in some areas. Because there are more cell towers, the individual cells are smaller. 5G cells can handle as many as 10 times the number of devices that a 4G cell can handle. Combined with the smaller cell size, there's the possibility of massively better throughput. But because the cells are smaller and systems need more cell towers, the development cost is considerably higher. This alone has slowed development. As 5G systems become more available, more computing power will probably be added to cars and trucks so that they can send and receive information about their position, possibly even communicate with smart traffic control devices that can be adjusted in real time for better traffic flow. That's a possibility, but don't expect that to happen anytime soon. The infrastructure needs to be present first, and it isn't. 
Then enough 5G-enabled vehicles need to be on the road for the system to have any noticeable impact. So think decades, not years. Internet of Things devices will figure into mobile use, too. Security has been lagging with IoT devices, although it has improved in the past couple of years. Having devices with unreliable security protocols on the network is a danger that must be addressed. Data rates are dependent on the frequency as well as the number of users on a given cell. 4G systems were supposed to be able to deliver 100 megabits per second speeds. But data rates like that in real life are all but impossible. 5G promises a theoretical maximum of 10 gigabits per second. It's unlikely that those speeds will be seen in practice either, but maybe half the theoretical speed, 5 gigabits per second, or even a quarter of the theoretical speed, 2.5 gigabits per second. Heck, even a tenth would be impressive. That'd be a thousand megabits per second, ten times higher than the theoretical maximum of 4G systems. So faster speeds are clearly coming. Some opposition to 5G technology is based on the possibility that the new devices will contribute to climate change or that they will be used by government and businesses to spy on citizens. Well, there's no question that 5G will increase the number of devices in use, but that really won't matter, hopefully when, not if, the planetary use of renewable energy resources largely eliminates the use of coal, oil, and gas. The surveillance concern isn't exaggerated either, but it also seems irrelevant. Just about every person on the planet already carries a tracking device around all day, every day, we use devices at home that listen to us. We use applications that report information about us to organizations like Facebook, Microsoft, and Google. So all of that calls into question our real concerns about privacy. Do we really care? That's something to be decided in the future. 5G technology is a game-changer for connectivity, and the technology can give one nation a competitive advantage over another. As a result, it shouldn't be too surprising to find that Russia is pushing hard to develop 5G technology at home while using disinformation campaigns to create and empower resistance movements in the United States. Unfortunately, some of these campaigns have been quite effective. RT Television has run several so-called special reports on the dangers of 5G. Now, keep in mind, the R in RT Television does stand for Russia. Russia Today is operated by the state-owned news agency RIA Novosti. That's the Federal State Unitary Enterprise International News Agency. It's part of a public relations effort intended to improve Russia's image abroad. It has a very long history of meddling and fanning the flames of conspiracy theories. German news magazine Der Spiegel says that RT uses a chaotic mixture of conspiracy theories and crude propaganda. In the United Kingdom, the observer's Nick Cohen wrote that RT spreads conspiracy theories and is a prostitution of journalism. And Oliver Cam at the Times called it a den of deceivers. In the U.S., journalists at the Daily Beast and the Washington Post have written that RT continues to promote long, discredited bits of disinformation, such as control of the world by the Illuminati and the forged protocols of the elders of Zion that were created before the Russian Revolution in Tsarist Russia. 
The respected nonprofit think tank RAND characterizes RT as a firehose of falsehood, and anyone who has studied actions by TASS, the old Soviet news agency, as I have, will immediately recognize the techniques used to spread lies. They're not new. Much of the disinformation is based on the assumption that non-scientists will not understand the difference between ionizing and non-ionizing radiation. We are surrounded by radio waves, AM and FM radio, television, cell phones, smart devices, and a lot more all use radio waves. The signals are all non-ionizing. The disinformation campaigns make a big deal out of radiation from 5G devices without mentioning all of those other radio signals and without differentiating between non-ionizing and ionizing. Radiation generated by nuclear power stations and held inside containment structures is ionizing. That's why the containment structures are needed. That kind of radiation can cause burns, cancer, and radiation sickness. Standard radio waves, non-ionizing, do not. So those who oppose 5G technology based on what they've seen or heard on RT television or on websites that base their so-called research on propaganda promulgated by RT television should seriously question their sources. If you find these podcasts useful, and I hope you do, might you consider a donation there are no ads here, and support from listeners is the sole source of income. It's easy. Just visit the website and click the Donate button near the top of any page. You can make a one-time donation or schedule a repeating donation every month. I thank you. And so does the cat. short circuits, encountering a website or a comment written in a language we're unable to read can be frustrating. Google Translate steps up to provide translations that, while not perfect, may at least be enough to determine the general intent of the writer. But there's a competing service from Germany. Which is better? The primary point to consider with translations is that no automated system can match the work done by a professional translator who understands both languages. Idioms and puns are just two of the most difficult tasks because each language has its own vast store of meanings. During World War II, some reports say that a disagreement between American and British generals occurred because of a misunderstanding of the word tabled. Both British and American generals wanted to act on a proposal. The British generals called for the proposal to be tabled. The American generals were astonished. Eventually, both sides understood that tabled meant putting the idea on the agenda so it could be discussed to the British. But to Americans, tabled meant we don't have time to put this on the agenda, but perhaps we'll bring it up later. Even English speakers can't always agree on what a term means, and translation simply compounds the issues and confounds the participants. So consider any translation provided by an automated system to possibly contain fatal flaws. Spanish-based translation service AT Language Solutions, which also offers its own online translation service, puts it this way. 
Although the speed at which machine translation can be done does offer a great advantage over human translation in terms of time, the translation is usually very literal and the meaning may sometimes be unclear. This is only to be expected as the way sentences are formed differs in each language. Translating each word and then putting them together can lead to a sentence that makes no sense. We therefore advise you only to use automatic translation to understand a text, never for publication or professional use. And that's very good advice from AT Language Solutions, but we can't always employ human translators who have native-like understandings of both languages. So that still leaves the question, which is better? Google Translate certainly offers more languages. The German-based DeepL is limited to Chinese, Dutch, English, German, French, Italian, Japanese, Polish, Portuguese, Russian, Spanish, and about 30 other languages. That's still a very respectable list, and one that will cover virtually all possibilities. If you need to translate to or from Bulgarian, Hindi, Maltese, Persian, Vietnamese, Zulu, or any of about a hundred other languages, Google Translate has you covered. Google also wins when it comes to cost because it can translate whole websites, files, and large chunks of text without charge, while DeepL is limited to 5,000 characters until you've signed up for one of the paid services. DeepL allows the user to click any word in the translation and it'll offer alternative suggestions. DeepL also has an application that can be downloaded and installed. When the application is running, the user can select text and press Ctrl-C twice to copy the text and paste it into the DeepL application automatically. I did some simple testing based on what I still remember from learning Russian in college. That was a very long time ago. The text I provided for translation from English to Russian was basic and straightforward. Both Google and DeepL performed accurate, usable translations. You'll see the examples on the TechBiter Worldwide website. I started with the English text. I am not a Russian spy, but I do want to know why you stole my pencil. Why did you steal my pencil? I am very offended. I will wait in the park of culture and rest where sleeping is forbidden. And if you took Russian in oh, say, the 1970s at Ohio State University, you may recognize some of those sentences. The primary differences between Google's approach and DeepL's approach is that DeepL frequently uses the first-person singular pronoun, that would be I in English or Ya in Russian, where Google omits it because I, or Ya, is implied by the verb. Either option is correct. DeepL also offers, for paid subscribers, the ability to switch between formal and informal usage for languages that make that distinction. When set to formal, DeepL would replace the familiar usage for the word you, t, with the formal word for you, vli. By default, DeepL seems to favor informal, while Google uses the formal tone by default. Although AT Language Solutions offers professional translation services, the company's research says that DeepL is generally more accurate for automatic translations. In the translation from English to Spanish, DeepL scored much higher than the other translators, such as Microsoft, Google, or Facebook, the report says. In the other language combinations tested, DeepL translations performed three times better than those carried out by the other translation services.
That conclusion by AT Language Solutions was based on a test in which professional translators selected the best translation from among more than 100 sentences that had been translated by automatic translators. So, for quick and easy translations, Google will generally be adequate for revealing the general summary. But DeepL will probably do a better job overall. For critical issues, though, hire a translator. Once there was an aphorism about Microsoft, they get it right on the third try. Part of that may be traced back to 1992 and Windows 3.1, even though Microsoft hadn't quite gotten it right with Windows 3.0 in 1990. Windows 1.1 was abysmal. Both Steve Jobs at Apple and Bill Gates at Microsoft were working to see who would be able to introduce the first graphical user interface based on what each had seen at the Xerox Palo Alto Research Center. Both companies released such systems, Apple in 1984, Microsoft in 1985. Apple got there first with a better system than Microsoft's, but 1990's Windows 3, and especially 1992's Windows 3.1, began to close the gap. April 1992 is when Microsoft released Windows 3.1. A year later, the final version of Windows 3 was released as version 3.11, Windows for Work Groups. Licensing and support for Windows for Work Groups continued for the next 15 years, although mainstream support did end in December 2001. Windows 3 was the final version of the operating system that ran atop DOS. The 3.0 version introduced an improved graphical user interface that offered three-dimensional appearance by borrowing some technology from the OS 2 Presentation Manager. Remember OS 2? It was the operating system that Microsoft and IBM were developing jointly, until Microsoft quickly stepped away from the deal. There were also improvements in memory management, and Windows 3.0 introduced virtual memory, the ability for the operating system to use a file on the computer's disk drive as if it were RAM. Virtual memory was far slower than true RAM, but it allowed development of large applications that could have modules swapped in and out of memory. Windows 3.11 was also the last operating system for Microsoft to run solely as a 32-bit system, with all of the limitations imposed by 32-bit architecture. You'll see a couple of images of those old operating systems from Wikipedia on this week's TechBiter Worldwide. Check the website. One of the most significant enhancements introduced by Windows 3.1 was TrueType, even though that technology had been created by Apple as competition for Adobe's Type 1 fonts. Type 1 fonts were used in PostScript documents. This technology provided scalable typefaces that were essential to desktop typesetting applications that had been available since about the mid-1980s. Users had access to Arial, Courier New, and Times New Roman in regular, bold italic, and bold italic versions, Wow! And Symbol added a group of scalable symbols. That was really exciting. Even more significant for the future was elimination of real-mode support and a requirement for at least an Intel 8286 processor and a system with a minimum of one megabyte of RAM. Windows 3.0 with real-mode support could be counted on to crash several times a day. 
The enhanced 386 mode allowed users to run multiple DOS windows in which users could manipulate the menus and other objects in the program with the Windows mouse pointer. Sometimes. This worked if the DOS application supported the use of a mouse. Some DOS applications even gained access to the Windows clipboard. That magic was accomplished by adding special DOS drivers at boot time to provide the hooks that DOS applications needed to be exposed to Windows. Windows 3.0 had been limited to using 16 megabytes of memory, but Windows 3.1 in enhanced mode gave the operating system access, theoretically, to 16 megabytes of RAM. Not that you could install that much RAM on any motherboard made back then, or that anybody would be able to afford buying that much RAM, even if it could be installed. Microsoft provided Windows 3.1 on three versions of floppy disks and, for the first time, on CD-ROMs. And last, Windows 3.1 introduced the Registry, a centralized database intended to store configuration and information as well as settings for operating system modules and installed applications. The joke at the time was that there was one person in Redmond who actually understood what the Registry does. That, of course, has all changed in the past 29 years. Now there is nobody in Redmond, or anywhere else, that understands what the entire registry does. Oh, all right, I'm being sarcastic there, but the registry is still something best left untouched by users. Most of the time. No knowledge of the registry is needed for spare parts. Instead, just hop over to the TechBiter Worldwide website, and this week you'll find these articles. It's possible to marginally improve a Windows 10 computer's speed with changes to some of the system settings. The improvements usually are modest, but perceptible. It's questionable whether offices will ever be fully populated again, but collaboration spaces may be the next step for workers. And 20 years ago, 3Com was in serious trouble and had begun the death spiral that saw it being acquired by HP about eight years later. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.